0: Welcome everybody and thanks for joining our webinar on the CARES Act and what it means for your business. We're one week into CARES here, it's April 4th. And what we wanna do today is walk through each of the key components of the statute. It's been in existence for for a whole week here, a $2 trillion package, and, and break it down into some component parts, labor and employment issues, small business issues, medium and large business issues, and healthcare, and talk about the basics, but also focus a bit on the frequently asked questions we're getting from folks that we're talking to all day, every day about the CARES Act. So that's today's program. I'm going to start with my friend and colleague, Mike Schmidt in New York. Mike is the vice chair of our labor and employment practice. And Mike, let's talk a little bit about the elements of the CARES Act that impact labor and employment issues as well as the prior iteration of the the stimulus or the um, coronavirus legislation. Uh, Mike, start by talking to us about paid sick leave and how a company determines if it reaches the 500 employee threshold to be covered under the paid sick leave and FMLA rules.
1: Thanks, Howard. Happy to be here. There have been a lot of questions that we have been getting from clients, uh, not so much anymore on just the overall concepts and the theory of the legislation, but really on the how-to and some of the practical questions. And this question you just asked me uh, is one of the biggest in terms of how do we determine if we we are even covered in the first place. Uh, From a default standpoint, a company, including its separate establishments, its separate divisions, and affiliated entities, are going to be deemed separate entities uh, unless, for purposes of counting your employees, unless you meet an integrated employer test. Uh, and that comes from the FMLA uh, prior provisions that were in effect before this. Uh, and just very broadly, Uh, It's going to be a factual analysis that each company has to look at for itself. You're going to look at when you're looking at two or more different entities to figure out whether you need to combine the employees. You're going to look at common management, whether there is an interrelationship between the operations, Uh, for example, common offices, common record keeping bank accounts, those kinds of things. Probably the most important factor you're going to look at is whether there's a centralized control of labor relations, hiring, firing, training, scheduling, policies that apply to uh, the various entities. And then the fourth common factor, which is probably the least important uh, that courts look at, is really the degree of common ownership or financial control. Are there separate payroll systems for the entities? Are there separate tax returns? Um, But essentially, on a factual basis, you're going to look to determine whether uh, the entities are integrated to the point where you need to combine the number of employees for all of those to see if you reach this 500 um, employee count. Just a couple of other high-level points that I want to make on this question. Number one, there is a small business exception for those companies that have fewer than 50 employees. And again, it's a factual analysis for certain types of leave. Um, And a couple of other points that I wanna mention here as well. Number one, you wanna be careful when you're doing this analysis as a company that you are not either inconsistent with an analysis that you've done prior to this coronavirus legislation. In other words, if you've done an analysis of the integrated employee test for FMLA purposes before, You want to be consistent with that, and you also want to be cognizant of any position you might be taking down the road. So you really can't just look at this analysis for coronavirus purposes in a vacuum. You need to look back and look ahead to consistency of your position. The last thing I'll say on this point quickly is, uh, and Howard, I don't know if you've Uh, heard any of this, but I I was hearing a little bit of chatter as Speaker Pelosi was talking about this potential fourth bill that they're going to be negotiating that one of the items in there might be an attempt to get rid of this 500 employee threshold altogether. Uh, So it may be a moot point down the road if that ever gets included. But for the moment, uh, this is what we're looking at now.
0: And Mike, what if both the paid sick leave and FMLA rules apply to an employee situation? What's the interplay?
1: Well, so the big takeaway here, like with so many other employment law issues, is uh, you really need to be considerate of all of the various programs and uh, legislation uh, when you're uh, analyzing a particular employee situation. So in this case, if you're looking at the paid sick leave uh, and the FMLA components, uh, you can have an employee that's covered by both if the reason for the leave being requested has to do with your child's school uh, being closed or childcare being unavailable. In those cases, you're going to have overlap between the paid sick leave and the FMLA amendments, such that, for example, the first two weeks, you're going to have a total of 12 weeks allowed for leave when both statutes overlap. The first two weeks are going to be allowed to be paid under the paid sick leave law. uh, And you're going to have uh, various rates that have to be paid and daily caps that are allowed, depending on the reason for the leave. But those are for the first two weeks. After the first two weeks, then you have the next 10 weeks to make up the total of 12 where you're not getting the full rate of pay to the employees, but two thirds of that employee's regular rate of pay, uh, subject to certain caps as well. But again, the big takeaway here is that you need to not just look at these different components Uh, in isolation, you need to consider whether there are requirements if they overlap in a particular situation. And frankly, not just overlap with this coronavirus legislation, but other leave entitlement statutes, both federal and local, that may apply to the situation as well.
0: Okay. So Mike, let's say you're an employee and you're sick. What type of notice and documentation does the employee have to give?
1: So the rules are somewhat relaxed because there is a recognition, there was a recognition from, uh, from Congress and the Department of Labor um, that it's going to be tough to give notice uh, in some of these circumstances. And it may be tough to get documentation from the employee's healthcare provider or the employee's child's healthcare provider. So employers need to be flexible uh, and need to be understanding uh, when it's coming to these situations. But as a general matter, uh, employers are not permitted to require advance notice, um, but what they can require is that uh, paid sick leave or FMLA requests be uh, in com- be comporting with reasonable notice procedures that are set up by the employer and that notice be given as soon as practicable after the first workday or the portion of the first workday for which the employee receives leave in order for that employee to be allowed to continue to receive such leave. So again, no advance notice is required. It can be given, the notice can be given by a family spokesperson if the employee is not able to give that leave. You can in some cases uh, be giving oral notice if you are an employee and an employer uh, has to accept that in some situations. Uh, And the regulations that just came out from the U.S. Department of Labor provide specific items that have to be contained in um, the documentation that is provided by the employees. And employers are not permitted to require more than what the regulations say you can ask for.
0: Okay. So in terms of documentation, what documentation should the company keep on hand?
1: So the regulations are pretty clear on this, that employers are required to retain all documents provided by the employees for a period of four years, regardless of whether the leave request was granted or denied. If there are situations where oral statements are being provided by the employee, then the employer itself must be the one to document that, essentially a document to the file, a memo to the file, and keep those documents for the same four-year period.
0: Okay. So Mike, let's shift gears to unemployment insurance. Obviously a very important topic, sadly these days, but does, does the company have to do anything for employees to seek and obtain unemployment insurance, unemployment benefits?
1: I'm sorry. So sure. And, and again, the the key point of this is that this is very much a state-by-state issue when it comes to unemployment insurance. People have been getting a little bit confused because the CARES program did offer some highlights and some additions to all of this. For example, the $600 a week supplement to state benefits. Uh, We're increasing the eligible period from 26 weeks to 39 weeks. We're also providing funding federal funding to the states uh, in certain circumstances, such as, for example, when the states waive their first week waiting period. But otherwise, this is very much a state by state issue. And companies need to look at the states in which they have operations, states in which they have employees to determine what the eligibility rules are and what the benefits are going to be. But what
0: happens if you're part time? Like, I mean, can you still get benefits if you're reduced hours or? or a part-time schedule?
1: Sure, so the requirements are gonna be relaxed a little bit, but now in the current schemes, um, what we're seeing is that even if you are working a reduced schedule, you're going, for example, from full-time to part-time, you can still get partial unemployment insurance benefits as long as the amount of days that you're working and the amount of wages you're receiving doesn't exceed a particular threshold that's been established by your state.
0: Okay, Mike, Layoffs and furloughs, the, obviously those words are being used a lot. What's the difference? Because furlough is this word, I don't know that a lot of people understand what it means. Tell us Tell us what the difference is.
1: Sure, thanks. And, and the words are being used quite interchangeably. And, and historically, I think people, when they hear the word furlough, they think primarily of government employees, federal government employees, because that's when the word tends to be used. But in essence, A layoff is much more of a permanent separation uh, of employment. You are off the payroll. You're no longer affiliated with the company, uh, whether that's a permanent or a temporary situation. A furlough typically refers to when you are not being separated, you're still going to be on the payroll. You still may be entitled and and be getting benefits, uh, but you're on essentially an unpaid leave whether it's a reduced schedule, or you're on a full unpaid leave, you still are tied to and affiliated with the company uh, in some way. And from a company standpoint, when you're trying to decide, well, which way do I go? You're looking at a variety of factors, whether it's financial, um, you're having to continue to pay benefits to employees who are furloughed. Um, Or on the other hand, uh, if you are furloughing them, and you're not completely separating them. When things turn around and you want to bring the employees back, you're going to save the administrative costs for these furloughed employees because you don't have to go out and again, rehire, retrain, potentially lose some of these folks uh, to competitors. But that's essentially the difference between a layoff and a furlough.
0: Okay. And Act notices, do you have to give them depending on the size of the company?
1: Yeah, and again, this is something employers are grappling with very much a state law issue. You have a federal worn statute, but you also have many worn acts depending on your state and local jurisdiction. So you need to consult those. But from a very general standpoint. Um, if you are covered under the Warn Act and for the federal WARN purposes, if you have more than one hundred full time employees, you may be covered under these situations. Again, state versions may have a lower threshold. You have to provide certain notice of a certain for a certain period uh, to employees when you have a plant closing or a mass layoff. Both of those are defined terms. Just the couple of frequently asked questions that we 're getting from clients. Um, When can you not have to have notice obligations triggered? Generally, if you are furloughing or even if you are laying off employees and you uh, expect it to be for fewer than six months, you expect the employment laws to last fewer than six months, you don't have to provide notice generally in those situations. You need to be careful because if circumstances change and there becomes a point where the layoff, the furlough, may now extend past six months, you may be required to issue notice at some point. Uh, And beyond this question of, can I avoid notice at all, the last question that we're seeing a lot of is, can we have a situation where the notice period is lessened? So if it's not 60 days, it may be 20 days, it may be 30 days. Um, and if you fall within one of the enumerated exemptions, again, we're talking just for federal one purposes. There are states like California that uh, have their own versions that don't include these exemptions. Um, but the most popular one, for lack of a better term, is this unforeseen business circumstance exemption. Um, which is one that really does seem to apply to the coronavirus situation we're in. And again, it doesn't completely eliminate your notice obligation. It just reduces the period of time for which you have to give your affected employees notice.
0: Okay, great. Thanks, Mike. Okay, so now I'm going to hand the mic off to Mark Alderman, who runs Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with me. Mark, it's fair to say that we spent the majority of our week talking about the small business programs, the $350 billion small business program, whether you fit, and if so, how it works, and take it from here, Mark. Great. Thank you, Howard. Uh, We have heard a lot about the Paycheck Protection
2: Program, and we have with us this morning Steve Dickinson and Bob McGovern, who, like uh, you and and like I, Howard, have spent a lot of the last week talking about this. The program is one week and one day old and already very controversial, Bob. So tell us, Bob, who is eligible for this program,
3: please? Uh, sure. Thanks, Mark. Happy to be joining you guys. Um, so... Uh, you know, we've been trying to make things easy for people by, by giving them uh, uh, three buckets of, of eligibility under the CARES Act. So first, you've got businesses um, in any industry that have less than 500 employees. Uh, second, you have um, businesses that meet the definition of a small business concern um, as, as defined under the SBA's general size standards for that particular industry, and there Every industry varies by size, and, and it'll correspond to a, a six-digit uh, industry classification code, referred to as the NAICS code. It's a self-certifying code, um, and, and size there is dependent on number of employees or average annual receipts of the company. And then the third category uh, that got special relief in, in, the, in the CARES Act, those are the hotels and the restaurants. There, um, hotels and restaurants are eligible for the program. Um, uh, if they have less than 500 employees at each uh, physical location, those are referred to as the sector 72 uh, industries. The reason they got special relief is because uh, under the CARES Act, the SBA has waived their affiliation rules with respect to um, uh, hotels and restaurants. Meaning that if you're not in one of those uh, in one of those industries, or you haven't been otherwise exempted, as as we have found. Uh, in some limited cases, as the week has gone on, that means the affiliation rules will apply. Good, thank you. And Steve, uh, if one is
2: lucky enough to be eligible, how much can a business borrow?
4: So the uh, business can borrow uh, a um, <clears throat> excuse me, an amount equal to two and a half times your average monthly payroll for the 12 months before the loan is made. Uh, If you read the instructions to the application form, it will say that most companies can use 2019 information, but that actually is not consistent with the act and it's not consistent with the rules that the SBA has adopted. Uh, They both say to use the 12 months before the loan. And in practice, we're seeing lenders that are using the last 12 months rather than 2019. So as people are preparing the information for these applications, that seems to be the way that, that the trend is going. And there is a maximum amount of, of $10 million uh, to the loan. If somebody has a, a payroll, that be more than that. It's capped at $10 million. So in, in, in calculating that payroll that you take the two and a half times, uh, you include salary and wages. Uh, you include vacation, PTO, that sort of thing. Severance payments, health benefits, retirement benefits, state withholding taxes. Uh, In doing the calculation, you cap the salary and wages, but not the other items at $100,000. So, one question that we get is if somebody makes $150,000, do we have to exclude them entirely? And the rules have made pretty clear that the answer to that is no, you just exclude the excess over the $100,000. And then you deduct. Uh, federal withholding, uh, FICA, and and railroad recovery, or railroad uh, taxes and and things like that. And then you, uh, but you only have to do that for the period that started on February 15th of this year. Uh, And then you also take out any payments that were made to employees outside the U.S. So if you have non-U.S. people on your payroll, you have to exclude them. But then once you calculate that number, then that's the number that you would take times two and a half times well, you, do, you did that on an average basis for the past 12 months, and then two and a half times that average monthly payroll would be the amount that you'd be eligible to borrow.
2: And Steve, what are the terms
4: of the loan? You can borrow the money for two years at 1% interest, and that is a, a fixed, every borrower will get that term, That that's prescribed by the rules. And then there is a six month grace period during which you do not have to make any payments. Interest accrues during that time, but the first six months are, are going to be payment free uh, recognizing that it'll take a period of time before we get out of this current situation.
2: Good. Thank you. Uh, Bob, now that uh, a business has the loan, uh, what can the funds be used for
3: please? So the funds can be used for uh, payroll And then other non-payroll expenses uh, like uh, rent uh, and and utilities.
2: And there's been a lot of talk, of course, about the forgivable nature of these loans. Can you walk us through that, Bob, please?
3: Right. This is the is this uh, too good to be true question, right? And uh, yeah, the, the loans are the loans are forgivable. Uh, but the important part, as, as Steve and I have been, uh, the question we've been getting quite a bit this week is, um, you know, we have to use it for payroll. And, and that's the answer. Um, you know, as long as the um, as long as the funds that are used uh, under the loan are used for payroll, then um, you can uh, they're forgivable. But to the extent that they're not, then you got to repay back the loan.
2: So that's the catch. It's not too good to be true. It's true that to the extent you use it for payroll, it becomes forgivable, right? Right. But it can be used for other purposes as well. It just affects the forgivability.
4: And you're, this is, you're, you're permitted to use it for rent and utilities and certain kinds of interest, but, but only up to 25%. They, they do require the 75% for payroll. But, but as long and, as you use it for those purposes, it should be able to be forgiven.
2: So I'm going to make this a jump ball, either of you. Please tell our listeners the um, <laughs> the confusing and complicated answer to how do I access this
4: program. Uh, this is Steve. I'll take that one. <laughs> um, it is... Uh, it, 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 administered through commercial banks that are participating lenders in the SBA program. So the the short answer is talk to your local banker. Um, Many banks uh, around the country are already SBA participants. If they're not, there is a process by which they could become part of the program and and the SBA is actually looking to expand the participation of banks to get more of this money out. Um, But um, What we've been seeing is that some banks, especially the larger banks, uh, have been in a position where they basically had to triage applications, and so they've tended to put their focus first on their established customers, and then will work with new customers as they have the opportunity to do that down the road. Um, We're seeing that a lot of banks are only taking applications through online portals. You can't just stop into your bank and drop off a copy of an application form and and a bunch of tax information. Um, but uh, we're also seeing banks ask for different requirements um, and and sometimes quite different from one bank to the next. so it really is a good idea to check with your bank to see what their requirements are, what their application process is and and try to make the the thing work as smoothly as possible
3: you yeah, know and Steve, to that point right one of the things that we have heard from a number of people is not only are they asking for things that um, might be in addition to what would otherwise seem to be required under the CARES Act. In some cases, we're hearing that some banks are asking for things that are directly contrary to what the CARES Act uh, is requiring. So, you know, uh, the CARES Act is not supposed to consider, for example, creditworthiness. But, uh, you know, we're hearing that a number of the, particularly the community banks, are are, are asking applicants, they're coming to us and saying, what do we do? Uh, and, you know, the, the practical advice that we've been given, is, as Steve just mentioned, is, um, you know, you, you, you need to work with your lender on this and, uh, you know, this, this stuff is happening in real time and it's happening fast. The program went live, uh, you know, for eligible uh, small businesses uh, starting just uh, yesterday. So, you know, uh, and, and one of the things the SBA said was in, in regulations that were issued uh, in the middle of the week, the question was asked, is this first come first serve? There's a limited amount of funds. How are they, how are these banks processing this? And the SBA came out and very directly said, yes, it's first come, first serve, which meant that there was a, uh, a crazy rush to, to these banks starting uh, first thing Friday morning. And so as Steve mentioned, you know, a lot of banks have already started processing it uh, and people who are getting questions about, uh, you know, should I give them this, even though it's not, uh, you know, technically something they should be asking for. The answer is you got to get this moving. Uh, and, and the larger banks uh, sound like they're going to start processing pretty quickly, too.
2: And lastly, guys, once an application makes it through that gauntlet and is actually filed by the lender, what happens then? When when will money flow? What's our sense of that, guys?
4: It's already, the reports flowing. are that. The, yeah, I was going to say the reports are that it's already flowing. Yes. That it, yeah, the Treasury Secretary has,
3: has made it quite clear that that, uh, you know, these loans are already being given uh, and he's, he's been giving real time updates as to the, the amount of funds that are already flowing under this program.
1: Great. There, there are a lot of employers that are also asking, you know, whether there are reasons that they would think of not applying for these loans. I mean, the obvious uh, question to everybody has been so far, why not? Are there things or, or things that companies should be thinking about uh, as to maybe why they shouldn't be applying for this money?
4: We, we get asked that question a lot. The The standard question is, this seems too good to be true. What am I missing? And uh, basically, it, it really is intended to be free money. Uh, the idea was to put money in the hands of companies so they can retain or, or rehire employees. I think the, the only real caveat to that is that the government doesn't want double dipping. And so there are some limitations on that. So for instance, if you apply, even just apply for the, the paycheck protection loan, then you can't participate in the employee retention tax credit. If you receive a, a paycheck protection loan, you can't take the payroll tax deferral. Um, you can't use a disaster loan and a paycheck loan for the same purpose. So there there's some limitations like that, but subject to a few caveats like that Um, Every company needs to kind of do the analysis and decide if they're better off with a tax credit, you know, on their 2020 taxes, or if they're better getting cash in the bank right now. I would say we've seen almost all the people that we've talked to about this say, I need the money now, rather than taking the tax credit later. But obviously, that's an individual decision that every company needs to make on their own. Well, Bob,
2: Steve, thank you for that. To review and Howard I think we're going to turn it uh, back to you for the Treasury programs
0: yeah um, and I'm going to welcome in Jeff Vogel my partner our partner in in Washington DC uh, Jeff is a former um, US Department of Transportation senior senior lawyer and has done a lot of work in and around government finance programs so um, Jeff Uh, is very familiar with government finance programs. But Jeff, in this case, we're dealing with a bucket of programs that, as opposed to the small business programs, are fairly uh, vague and undefined right now. So you have a tough task.
5: (laughs) That's exactly right, Howard. Uh, You know, in a lot of ways, I think this is a part of the CARES Act that's been sort of slept on um, because as you've had um, full implementation of the small business programs, we really have a a lot of open questions as to what these treasury programs are going to look like. You know, as a result of that, there's been a lot of misinformation out there. Um, So just broadly speaking, what we have is, you know, a a program in which the treasury has been given $454 billion in, in authorization and appropriations uh, to make loans and guarantee loans made by the federal reserve to assist, businesses, states, and municipalities um, that are dealing with this ongoing pandemic. Um, In turn, the the Fed can assist, you know, businesses through purchasing obligations or other interests directly from issuers, purchasing obligations or other interests in secondary markets or making loans, including loans uh, or other advances secured by collateral. Um, So, you know, we don't know what those Fed programs and facilities are going to look like just yet. Um, which is where you
0: know, a lot of the open questions lie. I'm not sure Treasury and the Fed know what those programs are going to look <laughs> That's like. exactly yeah, but, right. Um, you know, I think they, Treasury had to take over rolling out the small business programs from the SBA because they weren't getting it done. And Treasury is knee-deep in the, in the airline stabilization program. So I think there are certainly people working on it, but but they're fairly distracted. So, Jeff, what are the requirements or restrictions associated with these programs or facilities?
5: Yeah, so, um, you know, the the basic requirement is that um, these loans are available to any U.S. business that has not otherwise received adequate economic relief in the forms of loans or loan guarantees under the CARES Act. And this goes to, to Mike's earlier question about, um, you know, when, when uh, companies are assessing whether they should pursue small business loans, you know, looking at that language, uh, you know, it's possible that a business that's pursued a small business loan and in fact has obtained a small business loan, they may still be able to participate in in these programs if they can demonstrate that that small business loan didn't provide adequate economic relief. Um, You know, these programs are really open to only U.S. companies, which means you have to be organized under U.S. law, have significant operations in a majority of your employees in the U.S. There are certain basic restrictions that we know under the statute. So you can't have you can't use the funds for stock repurchases. You can't pay dividends or make other capital uh, distributions during the life of the loan and one year after uh, and there, there are also certain employee restrictions. So employees that made $425,000 or more in 2019 will be locked into that salary uh, for the life of the loan. Employees that made $3 million or more will be locked into that salary, um, really the $3 million plus 50% of whatever they made above $3 million. It's important to note, however, all those restrictions can be waived by the Secretary of the Treasury with congressional notification. And, you know, I, I doubt that uh, Secretary Mnuchin will be shy in, in waiving requirements where he thinks it's got to be necessary to really get the money flowing.
0: So, Jeff, we've heard a lot of talk about Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act. What is it and what, what are the requirements of Section 13.3? How does that fit in here?
5: Yeah, I I think that this is an area where a lot of folks that have been writing on this topic have sort of gotten it wrong. Um, It's buried in the legislation that essentially every uh, program and facility that the Fed creates under this $454 billion of authority is subject to Section 13.3. So Section 13.3 is uh, the Fed's emergency lending authority. It goes back to the 1930s, was refined in 2008. Um, during a, a lot of the, the bailout efforts and then was amended again under Dodd-Frank. It has, you know, a number of requirements to what the, the Fed can and can't do with that emergency authority. Um, so the programs have to have broad base eligibility after uh, the Dodd-Frank amendment, so they can't create a, a loan program or facility that's aimed at a single company. Each of these programs is going to have to have at least five eligible applicants. Um, two of the things that businesses really need to keep in mind that come out of Section 13.3, though, are that... Um, These loans are going to have to be endorsed or otherwise secured in each case to the satisfaction of the Fed. Um, So we don't know what the the requirements are going to be for collateralization, but there there likely is going to be some sort of requirement based on the Fed's risk analysis. And the second thing is that uh, these programs are going to require participants to demonstrate that they're unable to secure adequate credit accommodations from other banking institutions. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, when, when you're thinking about, you know, your, your sort of next steps, it's an important piece to keep in mind that you're going to have to make that affirmative demonstration if you want to participate in these programs. So
0: Jeff, how do we think all this is going to work between treasury and the fed? They're both relevant to this. It's a fed program, but treasury controls the money. How's that going to work?
5: Yeah, you know, I think the best way to think about it is that the Treasury is providing a backstop for Fed programs. So in a lot of ways, this is going to be driven by the Fed, but ultimately with Treasury approval. One of the more interesting statements, I think, on on these programs actually came the day before the CARES Act was passed, where Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said uh, that effectively $1 of loss absorption from Treasury is worth $10 worth of loans from the Fed. Uh, So in other words, you take that $454 billion in Treasury Authority, roll that up into Fed loans, and what you have is a potential for up to $4.5 trillion in loans coming from the Fed, which is just an astronomical number, and takes this $2 trillion CARES Act and turns it into ultimately something that could look like a $6 trillion dollar piece of legislation i i uh i had to do some sort of visual, visual visualization on what four and a half trillion dollars looks like so i don't know if you saw this howard but earlier in march there was this viral video that was going around of this guy who used rice to demonstrate jeff bezos wealth uh, so i used his math to kind of visualize this so if you imagine that one grain of rice is a hundred thousand dollars in a one pound bag of rice, you have 29,000 grains. So that one pound bag is essentially $2.9 billion worth of blending authority. So what the the Fed has sitting there right now is 1,551 one pound grain, one pound bags of rice ready to go. So this is a, a potentially enormous program that, you know, can save states, municipalities businesses of all sizes. Once we get this thing implemented,
0: I'll tell you, I'll just chime in here and say that, you know, the, the fed knows how to, um, create liquidity in the marketplace, the treasury, um, the treasury money is supposed to absorb the, the credit, the actual credit risk. Um, they're very much hand in glove on this stuff. Uh, Mnuchin and Powell are talking multiple times a day. Mm-hmm. Um, I was on the phone this week a number of times with the Treasury Department on programs that are clearly uh, they're they're actually not part of this section of the act they're they're under other existing authorities but um, they're clearly the purview of the Fed, but we were talking to Treasury about why we need the Fed to do certain things so uh, both both Treasury and the Fed have a role to play here. This is more about mechanics um, and everybody kind of staying in their lane um, at the end of the day than it is how, how these things get set up. So um, that's just my two cents there. All right, let's um, pivot to mid-sized businesses because mm-hmm. the act specifically speaks uh, to mid-sized businesses that are between 500 and 10,000 employees. So, talk to us about that, Jeff. What are the additional restrictions that the Act places on the mid sized business programs? What's what's really contemplated here?
5: Yeah, so this is obviously an area of huge opportunity. I mean, looking at businesses between 500 and 10,000, that's a, an enormous number of, of businesses that are captured by this potential program. Uh, so, what's contemplated is essentially a program that'll provide. Uh, loans at no more than um, 2% interest rate. Um, And during the first six months of of those loans, um, there'll be essentially a grace period with no principal or interest. Uh, This is One of the areas of the act that it's actually more restrictive than than other areas where um, Treasury doesn't have as much discretion. So there are a number of requirements, including a demonstration that the loan is necessary to support ongoing operations. um, That the the funds received will be used to retain at least 90% of the recipients workforce through the end of September. That the recipient intends to restore not less than 90 percent of its workforce as it existed on February 1st, which has to be done within four months of the end of the declared uh, COVID-19 public health emergency. There are some additional sort of labor restrictions here, so uh, the recipient has to agree to not outsource or offshore jobs. It has to agree that it won't abrogate any existing collective bargaining agreements. And has to remain neutral in any effort uh, related to union organization during the life of the loan. Um, So, you know, a number of additional restrictions here. um, But, you know, again, a huge opportunity to participate in a program where the maximum interest rate is is no more than 2%.
0: Okay. So, looking forward, Jeff, um, if a company has applied or will apply for the small business programs? Or are they ineligible for a loan under the Treasury Fed programs?
5: You know, the, the, the important piece here, again, is the, the language out of the, the statute that provides that any business is eligible, any U.S. business is eligible that has not otherwise received adequate economic relief in the form of loans or loan guarantees under the CARES Act. So I think that the best piece of advice here is that if you are eligible for an SBA loan, you know, it's, it, it's certainly worth pursuing, you know, that program is live, the money is flowing, um, you know, and ultimately, if you, you know, are, are declared ineligible, you know, through affiliation rules, as, as Bob talked about, or, um, you know, if the money runs out, or even if you receive a loan, but you can still demonstrate that, you know, you didn't get ad- adequate economic relief, it may be possible for you to, to pursue one of these programs as well.
0: Okay. And uh, what can we do, uh, what can be done in the interim while we're waiting for implementation of these ambiguous programs?
5: Yeah, I, I think there, there are a couple of things. One, for businesses, you know, your, your bank should be your, your first stop. You know, again, as, as we talked about under Section 13.3, borrowers are required to demonstrate that they're unable to secure adequate credit accommodations elsewhere. So having that conversation with your bank ultimately can provide the evidence that's going to be necessary to participate in these programs. And, and Howard, to your point, you know, uh, these, these discussions are ongoing as between treasury and the fed. Um, you know, I think there's a significant opportunity for uh, engagement and, and room for policy discussion on, you know, how this $454 billion worth of authority is, is going to be used. Um, you know, it's not clear what portion of this will go to the states and municipalities, what portion will go to mid sized businesses, what portion may go to existing Fed programs or the Main Street Lending Program, which seems like it's, it's aimed at small to mid sized businesses for sort of short term relief. So, I, you know, I think it's it's worth thinking about what sort of conversations businesses would like to have with Treasury and with the Fed to help sort of shape the, the policies that are being implemented.
0: Okay, good. So, Mark, I'm going to hand it back to you for healthcare. care. Um, but before we do that, I just want to toss out for clarification, generally, um, not-for-profits, We've gotten a bunch of questions this week about the applicability of the CARES Act to not-for-profits, whether, Jeff, it's the bucket we were just talking about with you, or um, Steve and Bob, the small business um, program. Can Steve, can you talk about the applicability to, to not-for-profits of the small business programs?
4: Uh, sure. Sure. Uh, Generally speaking, uh, non-profit organizations are not eligible to participate in in small business administration loan programs, but the CARES Act creates an exception for that, for this new paycheck protection program. So 501c3 organizations, not other kinds of nonprofits, but only 501c3s are eligible to participate in, in the program so long as they have fewer than 500 employees. And the Treasury just overnight put out some guidance with regard to the affiliation rules and how it relates to faith-based nonprofits to make it easier for those nonprofits to participate in the program. Uh, we're expecting some other guidance for for-profit entities to come out as well, but but overnight they came out with a nonprofit. So uh, 501c3s are eligible to participate and, and definitely should be considering this.
0: And Jeff, same for your bucket, right?
5: Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, nonprofits certainly should be looking at the treasury programs as well. There's nothing in the CARES Act that, in any way, indicates that nonprofits are going to be ineligible for any of these programs.
3: Okay, Howard. This, uh, you know, we've gotten a lot of questions on the small business side of of the 501c3s, hoping that the SBA affiliation rules were not going to apply. I don't think there was much ambiguity on that under the CARES Act. But as Steve mentioned uh, just overnight. uh, new regulations were issued, which made pretty clear, um, that uh, crystal clear, that the, the SBA's affiliation rules are going to apply to the 501c3s too.
0: A lot of what's going on is just the restatement or clarification in this context of rules that have been around for a long time. Right. Like that.
3: Right. And I mean, I mean part of it is that <laughs> there's, there's so much uh, to, to try to wrap your arms around with the CARES Act but i think you know uh as as jeff mentioned a lot of misinformation is out there and, and people are uh are are reading somewhat ambiguous language hoping that there's changes to uh to the programs that have been around for a while and we're finding that that's really not the case
0: yeah so mark i'm passing the baton to you to talk about healthcare Thank you. And uh, a very uh, appropriate
2: segue because much of the healthcare economy is, of course, organized on a nonprofit basis. So healthcare is a good way to end this morning's discussion. It is the front line of the crisis, of course. And I'm joined here by Chris Raffley, who's the chair of our healthcare practice. Chris and I have been on innumerable phone calls this week talking about the $100 billion program that the CARES Act creates. And Chris, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions to begin with, with the caveat that we are expecting imminent guidance from HHS, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, and maybe by Monday we will know more than we do this morning, but but let's start with the hundred billion, Chris. What type of lost income can be claimed from the hundred billion dollar grant fund that HHS is administering?
6: Thanks, Mark. Um, that is a that's the question that everybody is asking right now. Uh, there is uh, the, and we expect that really to be covered in in HHS's guidance. That's as you mentioned, is coming out in the next couple of days. There's some specific language around the type of expenditures that are going to be uh, that are going to be covered, and those are really related to preparation for the surge, building facilities, acquiring equipment, and, and other things like that. The lost income that will be will be uh, claimable. Let's say under the grant program, uh, there's not a lot of specific specificity around it yet. We can expect, though, that uh, it will cover more than just lost income from the Medicare program, which, as you know, the federal government adminis- administers, but um, will cover, for example, many hospitals which are on the front line of this epidemic right now are are down to about 10 to 20 percent of their current volume and other types of procedures or other than covid-19 treatment so we would expect that it will be covered uh, it will it will cover those type of lost uh, pieces of income and we'll will we'll see what the rules are with respect to you know what type of other sources will be used to offset uh, or have to be used to offset that lost income. In other words, the law states very clearly that if a third party or another source other than this fund covers those losses or those expenditures, that, that will have to be offset against any claims against the fund. So we're really looking for the detail on that in the next uh, couple of days, along with many other details in that particular provision of the act. Yeah, I
2: I think, Chris, a a corollary question that we are expecting this imminent guidance to clarify is whether Medicare and Medicaid providers who are not rendering treatment specifically for COVID-19 patients are eligible for the fund.
6: Yeah, so technically, the law, the way it's written, really talks about anybody who treats covid-19 patients or those suspected of being covid-19 patients it doesn't say that the actual treatment has to be specifically for covid-19 and that's important because there's a lot of providers who are who are you know treating other conditions that somebody with covid-19 might have or somebody that possibly has covid-19 might require and there's costs associated with that as well particularly when most of these Uh, facilities or providers are otherwise shut down. So there's going to be a very close eye on the extent of eligible providers. I think what we've heard is 80%, uh, roughly 80% of the 100 billion is likely to go to hospitals. Uh, They're on the front line. Of course, nursing homes uh, have to treat patients with, with COVID-19, but there's a, a group of providers that might not be directly involved in the treatment that are certainly going to have lost income and cost and are going to be important in this whole effort to to stem the tide of this pandemic that are, are really going to be looking closely to see what their eligibility and what their, what their rights are going to be to claim some monies under this fund.
2: And one of the Interesting dimensions of the health care provisions in the CARES Act is that unlike most of the rest of the CARES Act, which is mostly addressed to funding, there are a number of provisions in the healthcare portion that address rules that are perceived to be impeding the response to the, the pandemic. And the reshaping of how care is delivered, telemedicine being most prominent uh, as an example, is really taking place through some of these. One of the questions we are getting a lot, uh, Chris, is in that regard, uh, do any of the provisions in the CARES Act allow for cross-state licensing of healthcare professionals?
6: No, they don't, Mark. Uh, that there was some indication early on that federally, the the federal government was going to try to uh, pass some type of rule or, or issue some type of uh, guidance that would have allowed uh, greater flexibility in cross state licensing. That hasn't come. That wasn't in the CARES Act. But states are handling that on their own. Uh, they've, you know, the the rule that you basically have to be licensed. In the state where the patient is, is still in effect in in every state, as far as I know. But what the states have done is basically make the make it an easier process in order for professionals licensed in one state to get wave into, so to speak, the other state. So that's what we're seeing. But it's really occurring on the state level. It's not in this act, mm-hmm. and so far the federal government hasn't hasn't addressed that issue. And, and back. To
2: the Medicare and, and Medicaid uh, payment provisions, uh, for a moment, there is a, a Medicare accelerated payment uh, provision here. Give us uh, a quick review of what that says, and specifically whether providers have to pay interest on the funds advanced. Right.
6: right. So this is this is another way to get funding out to providers. And this is separate from the $100 billion grant fund. This is uh, the opportunity for hospitals and it only applies to hospitals to get accelerated payments from Medicare. And essentially what they get to do is they can apply to what's called their Medicare contractor. They used to be called fiscal intermediaries for advanced payments that total the past six months of their Medicare billings. And they get that in a lump sum which is essentially going to be an interest-free loan that'll have to start being paid back through claims offsets after 120 days from when the payment is received. And then it'll be paid back through claims offsets on an interest-free basis, really for the rest of the year after the the funds are received by the hospital. But it is limited to hospitals, but it's another way to get cash out to providers uh, who are going to be on the front lines of this fight against the the virus
2: and you mentioned uh,
6: that there are
2: numerous uh, adjustments of the uh, medicare payment rules in the cares act which are of course a one off and indirect funding of of hospitals in the crisis what do medicare providers have to do to benefit from some of these rules, the Medicare sequestration relief or the enhanced Medicare payments for inpatient services? What what does a provider have to do to take advantage of those uh, rule changes?
6: Really, basically, these are are, uh, rule changes that really use the existing pipeline. So, they really don't have to do a lot other than make sure that they're complying with any guidance that might come out. And for example, on the Medicare sequestration side, that's going to simply be an enhancement to uh, their Medicare payments, which actually, for those who followed it, was really a 2% reduction that was applied about five or six years ago. That reduction is going to be eliminated for for the time period of this emergency. So there's really nothing that should come through their payments. They just got to make sure that obviously it's administered correctly as those payments come through. Uh, there's some other things. For example, hospitals are going to get um, an enhancement of 20%, roughly 20% of their payments for treating inpatients with the COVID-19 virus. Again, there's been some additional codes. Some intermediaries are, are putting out some additional codes that these services should be built under so they the what the providers need to do is make sure they're staying up to date on the guidance but you know there for those things it's really they have to continue to bill as they have or look at the guidance for any changes in their billing. But those things should come simply through the normal pipeline that already exists. So there's, there's many things that Medicare providers are going to or many monies that Medicare providers are going to receive just through the pipeline and billing as they normally have. The two big exceptions being the grant fund in that mm-hmm. uh, Medicare accelerated payment that we just talked about for hospitals.
2: And all of that, of course, Chris, uh, is about the Medicare and to a degree, the Medicaid programs that are, of course, federal health insurance programs. What about the private side? Are private insurers and employee health plans required to parallel any of the payment enhancements in the CARES
4: Act?
6: On a very limited basis, really the main the main payment rule for private insurers and and employee health plans as well is that they need to cover uh, diagnostic testing, preventive services, and vaccines without cost sharing. Uh, They're not required to advance payments to providers. They're not required necessarily to, to increase particular payments uh, to providers that is really like all of the uh, discussions around uh, pricing for for private or commercial insurance as they call it, is between the provider and and the particular payer. Now, I know of some providers that are asking for some of the sa- same types of relief around some administrative requirements, some advanced payments uh, from payers. But uh, it's not mandated by the act other than those two things I mentioned uh, with respect to really covering the preventive and diagnostic uh, services related to COVID-19 without a cost sharing amount from the individual uh, insured.
2: And and Chris, one last question. all of the above, everything we have discussed has been about Medicare, Medicaid, uh, commercial insurance, employee plans. It's all been about people who have health insurance. We know that there is some double digit number, maybe 10% of the uh, American population that is without health insurance in this crisis. Is there anything in the CARES Act requiring government programs or private insurers to cover more individuals?
6: Not in the CARES Act, Mark. Um, you know, there's been a couple programs like the Healthy Start program, which is kind of an add-on to the Medicaid program that have been reauthorized, but nothing in in particular requires the coverage of more individuals who aren't already covered. Uh, you know, there's been... Uh, there was some discussion, but it hasn't happened of possibly opening opening up the uh, marketplaces or exchanges uh, on an off-cycle enrollment period right now, but uh, that has not occurred yet. So that might be part of a phase four, but uh, so far there hasn't been. You, you could understand, Mark, the uh, the rationale for that. We want as many people to feel that they have access to the health system so they don't sit, you know, sit at home and possibly infect other individuals if there's some treatment or some test that could be available that would change their behavior. But uh, so far, we haven't seen it.
2: Thank you, Chris. And Howard, I'm going to turn it back to you you. to uh, close up here with just one uh, footnote on, on something Chris said, which is that we all know it's been alluded to earlier here, that there is a COVID-4, a phase four coming. The uh, Congress is working on that even as we speak. In healthcare in particular, I think you're going to see a lot of these questions that have no answer today further addressed because it is a continuation of a dialogue on healthcare in this country that has of course been fiercely underway for years and the crisis is bringing into focus some of these open issues so for anybody in the healthcare uh, world uh, the the answer
0: is stay tuned uh, because there there's more change coming well mark there's been and you and I are obviously involved in it on behalf of our clients. There's, as as you said, and Chris said, there's, we're already on to phase four and negotiations are underway on yet another coronavirus package. And by the way, there will be a phase five and maybe a phase six. It depends how long this thing goes on for. Um, But we're, we're talking to folks um, that are looking for things in in phase four, and I think as we see it as a group, um, there's not enough money in phase three. There's just not enough money, and so what uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about a potentially massive infrastructure bill as as part of phase four. That was what Nancy Pelosi was talking about early this week. Um, that's been put aside in the last 24 hours. And the word that I'm hearing up on the Hill is that it's going to be a CARES 2.0. Phase four will be CARES 2.0. It will be more money for some of the same programs. It will involve an assessment of what in the phase three works and doesn't work, how it needs to be tweaked, where more money is needed, there will be more money going out to individuals um, uh, the the twelve hundred dollar checks uh, out out to individuals so i I think the spending the spending will continue. I think Pelosi partially backed off because the senate republicans uh, McConnell sounded a note of of caution, Mitch McConnell did. Uh, you know, I think they want a go slow approach to look at what works and doesn't work and tweak and they just did a two trillion dollar package. I saw Cory Gardner Senator from Colorado say, "You know before we go spend another two trillion dollars on something that isn't actually part of this let 's see what what works and doesn't work in this package so so that's my expectation, but I do think. This has kind of turn, just turned on the faucet, and there's no, there's no lack of willingness to spend to stem the economic crisis. I do think we could see infrastructure done and kind of swept in under that um, as we go through the year, but for now, my expectation is a CARES 2.0. What do you think, Mark? Mark?
2: I agree that CARES 2.0 is going to be, uh, in many senses, a technical correction act of the CARES Act. It's going to fix problems that have already arisen. It's going to double down on programs that have been established. I think there is unlikely to be a, a great deal of new innovative programming in it because the the imperative is to act and to act soon, I think maybe a month for CARES 2.0. I know from conversations yesterday with uh, members of Congress on both sides of the aisle, that the speaker is already collecting uh, ideas and putting deadlines on the submission so that uh, her package can come together. And I think, um, Leader McConnell is, is looking at a similar calendar. The, the one thing I will say, especially in healthcare, but I think in other areas uh, as well, is that not all of what we expect to see will be strictly spending. There will be, uh, uh, I think, some adjustment of a lot of rules that have come sharply into focus in in this crisis. Just one example, Howard, we all know that this crisis is gonna change the way that uh, Americans live for a long time, but telehealth has become very, very important in this uh, urgent situation a lot of us have been advocating for years for greater investment in telehealth in the federal programs and progress was slow but suddenly as as Chris can comment on suddenly we're there suddenly telehealth is front and center and i think you'll see other non financial adjustments like that in, in covid four. Listen,
0: Mark, if my 80-year-old father-in-law, the dermatologist, can right. engage in telemedicine it's in 2020, it's here to stay. It's howard,
1: here. howard and Mark, if I could just ask quickly, and that's a great point you just made, Mark, from, from a labor and employment standpoint, certainly as well, we're going to see some of this have uh, almost indirect implications going forward too when you're seeing uh, companies who are required to have all this telework uh, now, how is that right. going to impact when we get back to the office uh, requests for accommodations under you know, disability or religious related uh, uh, statutes? Uh, are, are companies now going to have to treat those requests a little bit differently now that we've all been teleworking? I, I would just ask each of you for maybe 30 seconds. It may be impossible for 30 seconds, but one of the other obvious indirect implications of all this is certainly on uh, the upcoming elections later this year. <laughs> And I know that's probably the subject of, a, of another 60 minute uh, discussion, but, but just very briefly, I, I'd love your thoughts. I know a lot of the companies have been asking me as well. What are your thoughts uh, very briefly on the implications of all of this on, uh, on the upcoming elections?
2: Well, I would refer you and our listeners to the Beltway Briefing podcast (laughs) that Howard, Jim Schultz, and I did for an hour before this webinar. Every answer you'll ever want to know is right there, Mike. You're welcome for that, Mark. But yes, of course, uh, profound implications for the election. Just two very high level comments. And then please listen to the podcast. Uh, There will be an election. It is constitutionally required. Only Congress can change that. And this Congress, divided as it is, is not going to agree to change that. And secondly, uh, we're going to find out what an election looks like when a lot of people are not willing to line up shoulder to shoulder and wait an hour to vote. Profound implications, but... uh, to be determined and explored at greater length than the Beltway briefing?
0: Mike, the economy is obviously crushed. It's shut down. Um, large swaths of it are shut down. Um, Trump owns the crisis. I, but I think, on, on the other hand, Biden represents the establishment and the status quo. And I think that, we are going to emerge from this and conclude yet again that the little guy um, is is at a huge disadvantage, and I think that's going to benefit Donald Trump. We'll see what things look like in November. Um, you know, he, he's you for, can argue for the whether,
2: contrary view. Uh, you you can right right right, right, right right. briefing. <laughs>
0: I I think we have to we have to see where things are this is so fluid and mark as you said in our podcast this morning it's everything else is ancient history now and i think we'll see it depends is not a very good answer but i think it depends what the state of the world (laughs) is i do think it's hard for biden to argue in favor of the yeah i I just think it's hard for him as the uh, establishment candidate to defend the establishment doing better than than the little guy. I just think that's fundamentally hard at the end of the day, but we'll I think
2: see. We'll be back in a month or so talking about uh, COVID-4 or CARES Act 2.0. Uh, I will be prepared to rebut Howard when we reconvene. <laughs> Good.
0: All right. Well, that this has been great. Thanks for joining us, everybody. We hope you found it informative. Feel free to... Send any questions our way by email. We're all accessible on the Cozen O'Connor website. And we look forward to continuing the dialogue and bringing you insightful content as we go through this painful period. But thanks so much for joining us and stay tuned.